genital herpes is a common sexually transmitted disease. However, it is one that is underdiagnosed and underrecognized. I'm your host, Ana Maria Rosario, and with me today is Dr. David Gandell, Clinical Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology from the University of Rochester, Strong Memorial Hospital in Rochester, New York. Dr. Gandell, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you. It's great to be here. Let's start off with how common is genital herpes? Genital herpes is the most common STD that is out there. Many people have heard about and are familiar with human papillomavirus, which infects probably a greater number of men and women, but the body has an ability to clear HPV over time. Unlike human papillomavirus, herpes simplex virus, once it's introduced into the body, is there forever. And it's estimated that Probably somewhere around 60% of the population has oral herpes in their body, mostly manifested as oral cold sores, and about one in five persons has genital herpes, and that amounts to about 50 million adults in the United States. And how does it present itself? Well, that's the interesting problem, because many people are familiar with what is known as the classic presentation of genital herpes, and that is painful sores and ulcerations around the genitalia in women, the labia and the vaginal area in men on the penis or in the urethra. But in fact, that presentation is atypical. When it's there, it's relatively easy to diagnose. But many persons actually have an atypical or very mild or perhaps even asymptomatic first infection with herpes, which is why so many of them don't know it. Of the one in five people that has genital herpes, only one in ten of them knows it. And that's because typically the presentation is mild. It might seem like a little irritation or redness, might be thought to have been a yeast infection, could just be an area of an abrasion. Often it's thought to have perhaps been related to exercise or irritation from shaving. And so the typical presentation doesn't happen very often, the atypical presentation is quite common. How important is it to know the different types? Herpes type 1, or oral herpes, tends to have a predilection for liking to be in the mouth. Genital herpes tends to be in the genital region. But in fact, about a third of all new genital lesions come from type 1 herpes. And this is because, for reasons that are not completely understood, many young people are entering adulthood not having gotten oral herpes as a child, which would then give them resistance against oral or type 1 herpes. Then when they engage either as teens or in their early years or perhaps even later in oral sex, if they're a recipient of oral sex from someone who's shedding type 1 virus from their mouth, they can then get a primary infection of genital herpes from type 1 herpes. It often is very painful, often very widespread just because of the nature of how it was contracted. The good news is that after that initial episode, recurrences are rare and subsequent transmission to another person is quite uncommon. So sometimes it's kind of one of these good news, bad news things when I am able to diagnose type 1 in someone is to say, yes, indeed, you have genital herpes, but the good news is it's the type of herpes that does not like to come back and tends not to be spread. And in fact, since most people are positive for the antibody, it tends to then not be able to be contracted by someone who's already had a prior oral herpes. Type 2 herpes almost always is in the genitals and tends to have what's called asymptomatic shedding, which can then infect another partner even in the absence of symptoms. And it's important for the person who has it to know because they need to share that information with another sexual partner going forward. And they can do things such as using condoms or taking antiviral medications that make it less likely for them to transmit it to another person. 
What are the treatment options? Well, the treatment options are really aimed to try to deal with the symptoms that the person has at the time, as well as to give them control over the episode. So if somebody has a particularly nasty first infection, the treatment, in addition to taking antiviral medications, are topical, topical anesthetics, sits baths, and so forth. But the mainstay of treatment is antiviral medication, and there are three different antiviral medications on the market. There's valacyclovir, acyclovir, and famcyclovir. They all are available generically. They all are very effective, although valacyclovir is probably the easiest to use because it has the shortest regimen in terms of taking it since it has the longest half-life of the different options. And treatment with the antiviral in the first episode is usually for 10 days. Subsequent episodes are much shorter. The other way that we use these antiviral medications to treat is to try to prevent recurrences. If someone has been infected with type 1 herpes, they're unlikely to get recurrences. But type 2, often in the first year, there are many recurrences, and that can be controlled by taking a daily dose of valacyclovir. The other reason to treat is if a person is in what's called a discordant relationship. Perhaps they got herpes either recently or in the distant past from another relationship. They're now involved with somebody who has either not ever had herpes or has been specifically tested. They don't have antibodies against it, so we know they've never been exposed. You can reduce the chance of shedding the virus and transmitting it to someone else by taking a daily dose of valacyclovir. This is a fair question to ask, but the importance of ongoing treatment for both the patient and their partner. If a patient and her partner both have genital herpes, there's no need to treat either of them to prevent transmission. So often I'll offer my patients the option of testing their current as well as future sexual partners. Again, since many people have had herpes and don't know it, it may be that they get into a relationship with someone that says, oh no, I've never had genital herpes, when in fact, when you test their blood, they have, and it becomes a non-issue. But the only reason to treat someone in that setting, if they both already have it, is just to deal with recurrences. Some people get recurrences frequently, every few weeks, every month or two, and that can be quite distressing, either psychologically or physically uncomfortable. But there are some people that rarely get recurrences, and then you give them a prescription to just have on hand. At the first sign of a recurrence, and most of the time patients recognize what's known as the prodrome, a little itching or irritation, maybe a tiny bump in a particular area. If they start on the medication within a day or two, they can abort the episode, and they don't need to be on continuous therapy. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to ReachMD, and I'm your host, Ana Maria Rosario, and joining me today is Dr. David Gandell. And we're discussing genital herpes. So, Dr. Gandell, what are the challenges in treating genital herpes? Well, I think the biggest challenge is making the diagnosis. I can't tell you how often I'll have someone where they come in and they are diagnosed with herpes and they express incredible disbelief because they say, how can this be? I was tested before and I didn't have it, and my partner was tested because I insisted that he have STD screening before we got together. But in fact, when you go back and get the records, they weren't tested for genital herpes. In order to test for that, it's not a culture unless you have an actual lesion at the time. It's a blood test looking for what's called type-specific antibody screening. And very frequently when people have STD screens, their physician or practitioner will have tested them for gonorrhea and chlamydia in terms of cultures or other types of testing directly from the genitals. And they will have had a blood test for HIV and herpes, and often hepatitis B or hepatitis C, syphilis, but 
almost never genital herpes. For some reason, even though it's the most common STD, it is off the radar screen of many practitioners. And so the biggest challenge is that patients don't know they have it. If you don't know you have it, you can't take precautions to not spread it to someone else. The other factor that is challenging is that because genital herpes often has such an atypical presentation, very frequently patients don't recognize what they have. So the woman that is getting a quote-unquote yeast infection every month, the man who periodically keeps getting jock itch that he relates to sweating, the person that has irritation by their anus that's thought to be hemorrhoids or pinworms or something else but just comes and goes, the person that gets a bump on their buttocks area that looks like a mosquito bite or a bug bite, a spider bite, or thought to be poison ivy, but keeps coming and going every month or two in the same spot. Very frequently, that's herpes. And if their practitioner doesn't think about it and either take a culture from the lesion when it's there, or at least do a blood test to see if the herpes antibody is present, they won't have the tools able to be applied to control these symptoms. And what about pregnant patients? So one of the things is that women who are given the diagnosis of herpes often decide, oh my God, I'll never be able to have a baby, or I'll never be able to deliver vaginally, or maybe I'll get cancer. Well, none of those is true related to genital herpes, except in very specific circumstances. If a woman is actively shedding virus at the time that a baby is being born, the baby can contract genital herpes, and that can be dangerous, potentially even life-threatening to the baby. So neonatal herpes is a very dangerous thing. However, the primary circumstance that when that occurs is if a woman gets genital herpes late in pregnancy. She's carrying the herpes virus. She's actively shedding the virus when the baby's coming through the birth canal. Those women really, if they've contracted herpes late, should have a cesarean delivery. But a woman who contracted herpes early in the pregnancy, or more typically, maybe she got genital herpes when she was 18 or 20, is now having a baby in her mid-20s, in addition to carrying the virus, she now has circulating antibodies against the virus. Those antibodies cross through the placenta into the baby, and the baby is born with some antibody protection against herpes, at least until those antibodies have dissipated from the baby's system. So transmission to babies in that circumstance is very rare. And unless a woman is actually having an active outbreak at the time of delivery, she can successfully deliver vaginally. Uh, many of us will actually administer antiviral medications such as acyclovir or valacyclovir from 36 weeks onward to reduce the chance of asymptomatic shedding as well as obvious lesions, and that then dramatically reduces the requirement to do a cesarean section at the time of delivery. Well, we talked about treatment options, and another component with patients is, is counseling. And how do you do that in your office? Well, counseling is really the most important thing I do. I can write a prescription, but patients are often very distraught at getting the diagnosis of herpes. This is not a casual diagnosis for them. Often they go, oh my God, life will never be the same again. No one will ever want me. They can react very emotionally. They often then want to know, in addition to why me, they want to know how, who, when. So, you know, we can't change the fact that that's their diagnosis, but we can give them as much information as possible. So first of all, if I see someone and I suspect that they have herpes right then and there, perhaps I see something that looks like a minimal lesion, or perhaps I see something that looks like a dramatic lesion, I always simultaneously draw antibody screens for both type 1 and type 2, and when I 
take the culture or the PCR. I ask for them to do type-specific testing if it's positive. So number one, I can find out if the virus that's being shed at that time is type 1 or type 2. I also can see what the antibody status is. So if the antibodies are negative, we know that this is a first episode. She hasn't had time, which takes three to six weeks on average to build up antibodies. And then we know that this has come from their current partner, and they can then discuss it with that partner. In fact, the most common way for people to discover that they have genital herpes is actually when they give it to someone else. Frequently, that's how the diagnosis in an individual is made. But I do counsel them that this is, although something that they may have to deal with for the rest of their life, which seems very upsetting, I do tell them that with time and with education and with understanding, they can put it in perspective. This does not make them undesirable. They can control the shedding so that that can become a non-issue. They can control the outbreaks. And it's been very interesting to me that over time, many of my women patients have come back to me and said that their relationships, that they've subsequently have been deeper, more sad satisfying and more committed because early on they had to share very personal information that made them very vulnerable and how the male reacted to this said a lot about the relationship going forward. Everyone has baggage. This is a type of baggage. But when you share that baggage with someone else and they turn and run, they're probably not going to be around for the other things that come up in your life. But if they say, wow, that's really something, tell me more, help me understand it, what does this mean, that bodes well for a future relationship. So all is not lost, even with this diagnosis. It's really good advice there. Would it be fair to ask if patients would want to bring their partner in and you have that discussion with the partner or in that regards it, to the counseling? Is ab- that an important aspect? Absolutely. That's a very great question. And in fact, that's something that I regularly offer. They don't always take advantage of that, but regularly I offer to have them bring in partners. And I have had some patients who, in the course of a series of relationships, have ended up bringing in more than one partner to help me understand or help them understand what is going on and what they can do. Final thoughts that you'd like to share with your colleagues about genital herpes that we haven't discussed already? Well, I think the main thing is if you see someone with recurrent symptoms, especially if it's in the area that's covered by boxer shorts, although I've occasionally seen lesions even on the lower leg. Think about herpes. Offer it as a test. Don't tell someone necessarily, well, I'm going to screen you for genital herpes. But what you can say is, I'd like to run a blood test, including some viral antibody tests, just to see if there's anything else going on that can explain these symptoms. If it comes out negative, at some point you can say, oh, and the screens, which included looking for herpes, were negative. But if it comes out positive, you can say, well, you remember I said I was going to be doing these antibody screens. We need to discuss those results. But if you don't think about the diagnosis, you'll never make it. Well, Dr. Gandell, thank you so much for being with us today. I appreciate you sharing your insights in regards to genital herpes. You're very welcome. And I'm your host, Ana Maria Rosario, and you've been listening to ReachMD. To download this podcast and others in this series, please visit ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening.